With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Happy Wednesday and welcome back to Hangout in the Holy Land. It is episode three here on the podcast and I'm joined by my co-host Gene Ross and we've uh, had some time to digest the exciting uh, season opener between Ohio State and Nebraska as well as the uh, thrilling events of the Penn State Nittany Lions versus Indiana Hoosiers game Uh, and we're uh, getting ready for this uh, big time Halloween matchup. Excited Gene? I'm very excited. This is the game you know a lot of people have been looking forward to this whole time. Uh, it's a good chance to see Ohio State against some some of the top competition, realistically, that they'll see all year. And uh, it's a great game in week two. It's going to tell us a lot about how Ohio State is. You know, Penn State maybe lost a little bit of luster after their game against Indiana. But, I mean, realistically, that, that game is a game Penn State probably wins nine times out of ten. I mean, they outgained it by a million. But I still think Penn State's pretty good, and this should be a good matchup for Ohio State, and it'll be good. I do think they got a little bit hosed at the end. I, uh, if, if they had ruled Michael Penix down, I think short of the, the goal line to gain, they probably wouldn't have overturned it given that they ended up saying that the call stood. So I, I, I never like to say that I sympathize with James Franklin, uh, but I, I do kind of understand if you're a Penn State fan how you think you, uh, you, you got a little bit gypped there at the end of that one. So it's that's a tough way for the season to start out, and I'm sure they're going to come into the Ohio State game a little bit pissed off as a result. But uh, before we get into any more Penn State analysis, you know, we both had a little bit more time to chew on uh, the Nebraska-Ohio State game. I know we were... You know, we both came away feeling, you know, reasonably confident when we did our recap show, but that was also, you know, within, you know, less than 12 hours of uh, the game ending. We, you know, both had some uh, hot takes fired up and ready to go. But now that we both did a little bit of a rewatch, you know, I did my uh, film analysis that went up earlier today on LandGrantHolyLand.com regarding fields in the passing game and how great it looked. And I know you did, um, you know, your own, you not only wrote the immediate recap of the game itself, but also, you know, I've had a little bit more time to chew on it after uh, looking it over. So what, what were uh, your biggest takeaways that uh, you think you didn't necessarily see the first time? Yeah, I feel like I actually miss a lot when I'm actually writing about the game because I'm writing while I'm watching and I'm not really taking in a lot, mostly on defense, I would say, because I don't really get to take a look at the minutia of like the defensive formations and that kind of stuff. But yeah, upon my rewatch, I actually feel a lot better about Ohio State's performance. I think the my main points watching it again, and God bless the powers that be that put the game on YouTube in 40 minutes, that is a godsend. But uh, my main takeaways after a second watch, um, I think that the offensive line was a lot better than I thought they were, especially in the run game. I think they opened up a lot of big holes in the run game that just weren't found by the running backs. And that's, like we've said, it is first game jitters that go into that. But I think that the offensive line, especially in the run blocking, was really good. And the pass protection was pretty good as well. I mean, almost, I'd say two of the four sacks were probably Fields' fault around the offensive line. He's just standing back there for a while. But they had pretty good coverage pretty much the whole whole day. So those were those were covered sacks. 
Uh, my other my other thoughts, I didn't think Zach Harrison played anywhere near enough, and I didn't notice this really in the first time around. I thought there'd be a lot more of a rotation with the defensive ends, and it was really mostly, it was Jonathan Cooper a lot, it was Javante John-Baptiste a lot, and um, I think Tyreek Smith and Zach Harrison both looked really good, but they didn't, didn't get an, anywhere near enough playing time. And then... Uh, in terms of the linebackers, I mean, we all know what we think about Tough Borland, but uh, he was he was okay in the second half. I think he he figured it out a little bit. There was the linebackers in general. I thought their main problem was that there was a lot of over pursuit, where like they were just on the snap. They were I don't know if it was just like the scheme or whatever, but there was a lot of blitzes and a lot of times where just like either Borland or Werner or Browning just found themselves in the backfield like right away, and then the play was past them and they couldn't catch back up. So that was a lot of the reason for some of the problems in the read option game. But I actually thought. Um, our best linebacker, surprisingly, I thought Dallas Gant looked awesome. He had he got credited with the forced fumble, and he was all over the field a lot in the second half. And I thought he looked really good and was probably like the most consistent of the linebacker group. Browning was okay. He he missed a couple tackles early, and then he kind of got it together. And you can still sell that tell that Pete Werner is like adjusting to the new role that he's in. But otherwise, I think it was it was okay. It was better than we thought for sure. Yeah, I think to your point, the the big issue they had on the first drive was that they seemed a little bit too eager to over pursue the edge in both directions. And uh, that's absolutely what set up the counterplay for McCaffrey that went for, what, some like 40 yards that set up that first first and goal. And then next play, they ended up doing the same thing on the read option. And it led uh, Taylor or not Taylor, Adrian Martinez. Taylor Martinez was uh, the Nebraska QB when I was in school. Uh, They got humiliated by Ohio State. Adrian Martinez is the one getting humiliated in 2020, but he certainly wasn't humiliated on that first drive. Um that that read option, you know, they just kind of over pursued on the edge and let him kind of, you know, pause once he realized he needed to keep the ball and then bounce back outside once things started collapsing again after they had just tried uh, too eagerly to get uh, to the edge to make a stop on the play. So I, they did a good job getting that cleaned up, um, and you know they. After they even the score up 14-14, Ohio State outscored them 38-3 the rest of the way. So, I mean, to you know, give credit to Ryan Day and the coaching staff, the, uh, the adjustments are definitely still there. Uh, I was pretty surprised, honestly, that Master Teague not necessarily got more carries than Sermon did, but that he definitely appeared to play more snaps. I thought we would definitely would have seen more out of Sermon than we did. But when I rewatched the game, the big thing that stood out to me was that they they did not try to use Sermon as a pass blocker at all. Almost every time he was lining up, if he wasn't getting the ball, they were having him go out into the flat. Even on plays where he was running play action, they were still having him stem that into routes. So they were very adamant about using him as an additional receiver. But that only really ended up in him making, I think, one catch uh, out of the backfield. By comparison, Teague not only was used much more often as a pass blocker, but was extremely effective at recognizing blitzes and picking up guys, and that's something that I think is very underappreciated in terms of the running back skill set. It's something that made Ezekiel Elliott a very attractive NFL candidate coming out of college, and uh, something that that Urban Meyer gave him a lot of praise for while he was here. And, you know, you're going to see more sophisticated blitzes and whatnot and, you know, just more difficult stunts to read as the season goes on. But if the first game is any indication, uh, Teague is definitely going to stay in that kind of if it doesn't end up being a 50-50 split, it probably ends up leaning 60-40. And the reason you're going to see that just from a snap perspective is because Teague has that pass blocking skill 
And when you have a quarterback like Fields who thinks he, if you're, again, the one criticism I make of the guy is that he thinks he can make every play. And that's what ended up resulting in, you know, at least half of those sacks that they took on Saturday. Teague is at least going to be able to buy him a little bit more time so that he can make those plays that he think and that most of us know that he can. So I'm, I was pretty encouraged by everything I saw with the running backs. Uh, and, you know, I, even though the run game itself wasn't all there like you would maybe want it to see. I mean, the passing game was just so unbelievably efficient on Saturday. It didn't end up mattering. So I think that they're, you know, going forward, you'll probably see a little bit more balance. You'll see Trey Sermon used in, you know, more uh, more of the role that he we imagined for him coming hit with him coming from Oklahoma. But overall, not not too many more things to harp on that I saw on the rewatch. Just really just more encouragement. Yeah. And actually on the rewatch, I actually thought Sermon played a lot better in the second half than he did in the first. He looked a little timid in the first half and like kind of looking for like a like a Le'Veon Bell kind of hesitation trying to find the hole. And in the second half, he just kind of hit it and he looked a lot better. He almost broke a long one. He got like shoestring tackled. And then just one more thing I want to bring up before we move on to the next one is just how much they used the bullet on defense, which I didn't realize the first time around. A lot, it was pretty much their go-to third down package where they would, they took out Borland and they put Josh Proctor in the box and then they had Hooker as the one high safety and they had Browning and Werner on the field as the two linebackers. And that was that was really effective. Proctor made some really nice plays in space. He made a play in the backfield on Adrian Martinez and he looked really good. So like, I think that's a look we're going to see a lot on obvious passing downs, and they weren't shy to use it. It was almost like pretty much every third and long, that's the the set they went with, and I, it looked really good. Well, I, I know as, you know, again, we, we we appreciate Borland for the run-stopping ability and the the leadership that he brings, but, uh, you know, when you're, when you're getting into those obvious passing down situations, you definitely want to see something more akin to a nickel or a dime look. So, you know, bringing – Bring the safety in for the bullet spot and, uh, you know, just making it a little bit easier on everybody involved to firm up that coverage, I think, is definitely very encouraging. I don't think that that's necessarily something we saw last year uh, very often. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, I hope that it carries over into the next game uh, and beyond uh, going forward. Speaking of the next game. Um, you know, I guess before we get into the next game, uh, if for the people that were listening to the recap show on Saturday, they can probably recall that you were uh, pretty, pretty heavily distracted by that, that end of the Penn State Indiana game. And I, I, we, we were thankfully able to wrap up recording in time that I could go catch the uh, end of it myself as well as uh, the full overtime period. But uh, I, I didn't watch the entire game, as I suspect you watched a lot more of it than I did. But I, I do have some of my own thoughts just relative to how Penn State did last year and how they performed in the opener. But I guess we should probably get your perspective first, just because you you know had a more, I guess, fluid understanding of, of their play to open the year. So what... Do you think, you know, it was more of them beating themselves or did Indiana really just play a great game? What, how did, what, what's your take? What's your perception of Penn State coming off of that first game so far? Yeah, I mean, I stand by everything I said on the last pod where I said Indiana will do pretty much anything they can to lose a football game. When they tied it up and then squib kicked it to the 50 to give Penn State a chance to kick a game winning field goal, I was like, this is this I is screamed. peak Indiana. They're doing it. They're really doing it. <laughs> I but yeah, it was it was one hell of an ending. Um, I don't think, for the record, I don't think every time I watch the Michael Penix play and for the two point conversion, I I have a different feeling on if he was in or not. I have no idea. I've never seen anything like that before. It's an absolutely insane ending. But yeah, just in terms of the game overall, I had it on pretty much for the the whole time. I wasn't 
intently watching it because I was trying to catch up on all of the Ohio State Twitter I missed while I was writing the recap, and I love delving into all those memes, so I was doing that, but I would have the game on in the background. Um, yeah, I think, like you said, I think it is more of a case of Penn State beating themselves than it is Indiana winning, and I do think Indiana will be pretty good this year, but I mean... Just looking at the box score, I mean, Penn State outgained them 488 to 211. Like, it wasn't particularly close. They outrushed them 250 to 41, and that's with losing their their starting running back, who was already their second-string running back early in the game. And so I think it was a lot of, you know, a lot of turnovers. Sean Clifford did not look good. He had a lot of overthrows. He threw two picks. I think he fumbled as well. I don't know if he fumbled or not. But either way, he he had a lot of throws where it was like, oh, that was, that was not pretty. Um, he did not look like he was ready to go but that he looked a little better in the second half for sure and their defense I mean their defensive line looked really good uh they got that guy Shaka Tony who's gonna who's somebody Ohio State's definitely gonna have to prepare for on that defensive line he had two sacks last week he looked really good but their secondary was um a problem Michael Penix only was 19 of 36 with 170 passing with a touchdown and a pick but a lot of his incompletions were just straight up drops by wide open receivers so uh Penn State's front looked okay but their secondary did not look ideal. And I mean, their offense, Sean Clifford was okay. And I mean, we're the we're going to talk about Pat Fryermuth, I'm sure. But he's uh, he's still pretty good. Hasn't changed. Nothing's changed over there. The the thing that shocked me the most was because, again, I, I jumped in right before that uh, unintentional squib kick at the end that Indiana attempted. And they showed a graphic heading into overtime that I think Penn State had over 400 yards of offense and Indiana had not even eclipsed, I don't think, 200 yards of offense at that point. And yet you still you still felt like Indiana was very much the team that was playing better. And I mean, even, you know, looking at the box score again upon review, it didn't outside of those two interceptions that Sean Clifford had and, you know, looking at it now, it appears he did not, in fact, fumble. So I guess you can only credit him with two turnovers. But in terms – he still played a, a very good – quarterback game outside of those picks he i get you take away the two interceptions and he finished uh 24 for 33 for 238 yards and you know had three of their touchdowns so they and and then ran for another one as well and he was he was their leading rusher on the day too i mean i i never feel good when your quarterback has over 15 carries just because you're putting him in a pretty vulnerable position and i get that's it's always pretty much the way I felt about Fields, but when the guy goes for a buck nineteen for rushing yards, it's hard to be upset with that. And I, I worry that worries me a lot because we we know how much Ohio State has kind of struggled recently with uh, rushing quarterbacks. And one of the things that I think they lucked out with last year was Clifford, I believe, got hurt fairly early on in the game. And so they didn't really have to deal with that dual threat running QB as much. And if, and if you remember, they brought in uh, Will Levis as the backup last year, and that is the guy that actually fumbled. I think he came in for like a running play, kind of in a, a Luke McCaffrey-esque situation, and that's the guy who actually fumbled. Gotcha. But yeah, they ran a lot of the uh, the same kind of read option plays that Nebraska was running. So hopefully Ohio State got their practice in, because I'm sure they're going to see it a lot again this weekend. I think we're probably going to see it from almost every opponent they play the rest of the year that has some kind of quarterback with, you know, that is that can at least walk. <laughs> I mean, because it's it's very evident, at least in the before they're able to make their adjustments, that they're they're going to commit to stopping the running back and that, you know, it's just an unfortunate trend we've seen year over year with these these mobile quarterbacks, even 
you know, going all the way back, just speaking purely in Penn State terms, I mean, Trace McSorley was giving this team nightmares year in and year out. So it's, yeah, I, I certainly hope it's something that they adjust for. We'll see if, you know, Clifford is as aggressive rushing the ball as he was against Indiana because it certainly didn't show up last year. But again, he was playing a little bit hurt. Yeah, they're uh, they're pretty beat up too with running backs. So like Sean Clifford might have to shoulder an even bigger load than he did last week because they're uh, Journey Brown's out for the year with a medical issue, and right. Noah Kane early in that game came out and he got hurt, and then he was on the sideline in crutches and a boot. So I don't I don't think he'll be back this week. He might be, but I I doubt it based on how he looked. And after he came out, I mean, the guy who replaced him, Devin Ford, had 20 carries for 69 yards. So that's not exactly what you want against an Indiana defense. And then Cavone Lee did okay. He had six guys for 35 yards, but I, it's going to, a lot of the running is going to be on Sean Clifford's shoulders. So he is going to be a big part of that offense. Yeah, they're going to have to lean on him. And, you know, looking around at how they did in the passing game, it seems like Sean Clifford did a good job spreading the ball around. Yet, I think seven different receivers that caught at least two passes. So they, Certainly a better job than Justin Fields did, although, again, when, when Fields only misses one pass the entire afternoon, it's hard to complain about that. But they, uh, I, I'll be curious to see how the offense performs. I'm less concerned about how Ohio State's offense will do against their defense just because it certainly seems like they're missing Micah Parsons. But yeah, I, 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 it'll be interesting to see you know, just how they are able to you know, lock up Clifford. And I, I think that this will be a good like litmus test going forward for how are they going to be able to defend this kind of quarterback because Clifford certainly you know again turnovers notwithstanding seems like from an execution standpoint he's at least improved from last year which I think is encouraging for Penn State but again you know in the grand scheme of things they still lost to Indiana they still blew their opener as a uh, top 10 team and that's not something you ever want to see yeah and in reading I was reading up on Penn State on the uh the Black Shoe Diaries, which is Penn State's SB Nation site, and they gave quarterback they gave, they rated him a C, and they were saying you no, know, he had he made some really nice plays, but he also he missed a lot of throws. The interceptions were inexcusable. I, I did watch one of them where he was trying to hit a guy in the flat, similar to like that um, that Garrett Wilson crossing pattern that Ohio State ran, and he threw it like ten yards over the guy's head, and it was just a terrible pass. So there was a lot of that, but then there was some there was some really nice plays. You know, he made a really nice 35-yard touchdown run. And so, like, he, he was good and he was bad. So he has his moments, but he's going to, if he's going to make mistakes like that against Ohio State, it's it's going to be a long day for him. So he has to really kind of reel it in and not and, I, and nerves shouldn't be a factor considering they're at home and there's no crowd, but he, it's going to be tough against an Ohio State defense that's, they, they got to improve from last week, right? We joked about it earlier, but in all seriousness, uh, Pat Fryermuth was the leading receiver for Penn State in the game last year, and he led Penn State, caught three more passes than any of their receivers did uh, in this game as well. And Ohio State, for you know all the excellence that they boast year in and year out in the secondary, you know even given they're still needing to fill in the uh, absences of. Uh, Jeffrey Okuda and Damon Arnett as the season goes on we're still very confident that they're going to be able to do that it's it's tight ends and particularly good tight ends that have given them a lot of problems um, year in and year out Um, we see a lot of the games that you've seen that Michigan has been able to play them close in recent years They've, they've been able to lean on their tight ends on you know those those underneath routes and delays and uh it's it just very May, it makes me nervous that if they if they know the players that they need to lean on, like you know, for example, it seems like Kayvon Lee had a had a bit more success uh, running the ball than Devin Ford did. So maybe if they divvy up the carries a little bit more, 
you know, take some of the that running stress away from Sean Clifford and do a good job of focusing on on uh, the the targets that they need. I think that this game could be. I, I think Ohio State right now is something like a ten point favorite, which I mean, being a, it, even coming off of that loss for uh, against Indiana, is having a double digit favorite against a, a team like that that's supposed to be the best opponent on paper on your schedule just seems a little high to me. So I'm particularly after how the Nebraska game started. I'm a little bit nervous about them living up to that. But I again, I'm I'm confident the points are going to go up for Ohio State's offense. The only question is how are they going to respond and react to uh, what's going to, in all likelihood, be a very angry Penn State team that is going to come out looking to prove that they are still one of the best teams in the country and possibly the best team in the Big Ten. Yeah, the line opened somewhere between eight and nine, depending on the book you're looking at. And I now see it's up to 13 and a half now. So it just keeps going up in favor of Ohio State. The money's coming in on the Buckeyes, which I mean, it usually always does. But this game to me, I mean, it seems like strength on strength both ways for both teams. So like the uh, Penn State's offense is going to use their tight end, which as we know, Ohio State struggled with. We all watched that Iowa game. We all saw the tight ends. It's terrible. Ohio State struggled with the tight ends for a while. And then on the flip side, Penn State's secondary is the weakest part of their defense, and Ohio State's passing offense is unbelievable. So I think it's strength on strength both ways, and it'll be interesting to see which strength prevails. I will say, too, that I thought that it's a bit similar to last year where you you thought that if Ohio State's able to jump out to a lead just because you don't have that supreme confidence in their passing game, that it's going to be hard for them to stay in the game. And it was, I believe, it was a pretty not great weather day when they played last year in November. I remember it was like really clammy and rainy. And that was all, you know, to Penn State's benefit, I think. Uh, Clifford last year, I mean, didn't even, neither of their quarterbacks that came in were able to exceed 100 yards passing. Um, and actually, Will Levis, when he came in, actually averaged more yards per completion than Clifford did. But again, Clifford was playing hurt. Um, but it, it, it kind of has that same feel again, where if if the game script favors a more run heavy approach, if you're if this if this game is not getting to the point where Ohio State's opening that two or three score lead and they're forced to throw the ball, that they're going to be able to hang around a lot longer than I think any you know Buckeye fans would feel comfortable having them do. That being said. Again, weather, I think, played a very big factor in that last year. So if you've got particularly as I believe they're going to Happy Valley and you're not necessarily going to have the impact of that whiteout and 110,000 people bearing down on you and screaming, which is what we've seen has given Ohio State a lot of pause coming into these games in recent years. So you take out that pretty significant crowd factor and you know maybe give a little bit more normal weather conditions than they had last year. I think you've got a little bit more freedom for the passing game to open up, and uh, you're going to see those early points go on the board for Ohio State. And if this game turns into a track meet, uh, it, it's going to be a lot more difficult for Penn State to stay in, particularly with um, you know I, I don't know how much they're going to be able to rely on the running game early just because of their uncertainty at running back. Um, so I. You know, I know I started out this podcast just trying to, you know, play devil's advocate in terms of, uh, you know, this this game, you know, feels like it could be a little bit closer than uh, we would expect it to be. But I, I think the more I talk it through with you, the more I, I come away feeling like that this can be a uh, this can be a pretty good setup for Ohio State to come away with an impressive win here. 
Yeah, I mean, last year, by all measures, except on the scoreboard, it was a blowout. I mean, the final score was 28-17, but that's literally only because I think Justin Fields fumbled three times, and like two of those were in deep in their own territory. But Ohio State dominated that game on both sides of the ball. And I mean, a lot of that was J.K. Dobbins. They couldn't stop him. And they don't have him anymore, but they do have Justin Fields, who is awesome. I don't think their offense can have trouble scoring. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend that any team try to get in a track meet game with Ohio State. If you want to go offense to offense, I don't think you're going to win, unless you're the Clemsons or Alabamas of the world. And even them, I don't even know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Ohio State and Penn State just play these weird, close games, no matter what the talent disparity is. Like, the last, they've won the last three, but besides last year, the two before that were both one-point games. And both of them, Ohio State had to make massive comebacks in the second half. So I don't know what they do over there at Penn State, and it's not James Franklin, I'll tell you that, because Penn State fans are not happy with James Franklin right now. But uh, whatever they do over there, it works. I mean, Ohio State's won seven of the last eight, but it just seems like they give Ohio State a tough time no matter what the roster situation is. Yeah, if I was a Penn State fan, I'd be very eager to fight James Franklin right now. And uh, I, I think Franklin has tried to fight Penn State fans after losing to Ohio State in the past, so I'm, su- I'm sure he'd certainly oblige if given the opportunity. But in any event, I um, it, it, these games, you're right. They just always end up being weird. Yeah, I mean, Fields definitely had a case of the Butterfingers last year. And uh, again, I, I, the weather, I think, was coming in, I, I thought it was going to be a factor that was just going to turn it into a, a real grudgy game. And that's what it ended up being. I don't think most people didn't expect 28-17 on the final scoreline. I mean, even weirder was that Penn State got shut out for three quarters of that game and scored all 17 of their points in the third, which made it a lot more uncomfortable than I think it, uh, anybody would have wanted it to be. But in any event, I um, I do feel pretty good about Ohio State going into this game. There's also another interesting storyline going into this game that might not be as interesting without a crowd, but Justin mm. Fields was originally committed to Penn State, and this will be his first time playing in Happy Valley. And so I'm sure the fans would have had a ball with that one if he came in there with them. It might not be as big without it, but it might be interesting for him to come back to a place where he was originally committed to play football. So he, he was committed to there and then decommitted to go to Georgia? Yeah, he, he committed. He committed to Penn State. He decommitted from there, wound up at Georgia, and then right. the rest is history. That is interesting. I was not aware of that. But yeah, I think I think without a crowd, uh, that's not necessarily going to, you know, maybe, I don't know, if there's some people on the sideline that are privy to that, that, you know, were aware that maybe they could have been playing with Justin Fields. Maybe he would have been in the same class as them. I imagine most of those people are probably upperclassmen by now. Um, might be a little bit of just imagine, mm-hmm. imagine, imagine the difference in this game we would be talking about right now if it was Penn State quarterback Justin Fields and Ohio State was going in there with uh, like Ohio State quarterback Tate oh, Martell. Boy. No, I don't put that thought in my head. Uh, Tate, Tate, wherever <laughs> you are, I, I hope you're happy. We're 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 rooting for you, Tate. Then, um, but in any event, I definitely think that you know, to your point, if the crowd was there, that would be something that would be much more of a talking point. And you know, we got. We got college game day there, I believe, uh, this weekend. So we'll see if uh, they bring that up themselves. But yeah, college game day snubbed the biggest Big Ten matchup of the weekend in an undefeated Indiana versus oh, undefeated wow. Rutgers. A matchup of the year. It's got to be a historic game for so many different reasons. Speaking of Rutgers, I can't believe that they uh, they announced the week three schedule for the Big Ten this week, and they put Ohio State Rutgers in prime time, which I actually think it was last year too. So I, I find that incredibly shocking that they would put, or Big Ten Network at least, would put Ohio State Rutgers in their primetime slot. But I guess, you know, whatever gets the network ratings, that's probably what's going to do it for them. 
Yeah, Ohio State's the biggest draw in college football. I mean, they had the their the Ohio State Nebraska game was the most watched game of any game in college football this weekend. So wherever you could put them, that you're going to get the most eyes, you're going to try to do it, no matter who they're playing. I totally get it. It's just putting Rutgers and prime time in the same sentence for me is is just very bizarre, even though, you know, give them credit. They forced, I think, what, seven turnovers against Michigan State this past weekend? Just something ridiculous. So You but. got you got to respect undefeated Rutgers or they will come for you. <laughs> the Greg Schiano revenge game is is upon us. I'm, I'm very, very excited for that for all the wrong reasons. But before we get out ahead of our skis, we still have the uh, the – the big top 25, unfortunately not top 10 anymore, but a uh, big, big ranked matchup for Ohio State this weekend. Uh, you know, coming into the the rescheduled Big Ten season was certainly the biggest game on their schedule. So given everything we've talked about, Gene, you were uh, you're pretty, pretty well in the ballpark with your scoreline prediction last week. How do you think this one ends up unfolding? I think this one's going to be a little tougher to predict because I don't really know how Penn State's feeling now. It, the, the loss could either prevail them and make them even more angry against Ohio State, or they could be pretty dejected and start out the season 0-2. So this one I think is going to be tough. I'm going to predict Ohio State to score their least points of the year in this game, but that wow. point total is still going to be over 40. So I think they're going to win. I think it's going to be 42-21. I think it'll be close going into halftime, maybe a 7- or a 10-point game. And then third quarter adjustments, it's gonna the Ohio State's gonna run away with it. And I don't think it's really gonna be it's not gonna be like last year where Ohio State dominates the whole way, but I don't think you'll be sweating it out in the fourth quarter either. I do think the halftime adjustments are gonna be key. They always end up being that way. Um, but yeah, I think that you're you're probably right on the money. I'm gonna I'm gonna give Penn State a little bit more uh, I don't know if bandwidth is the right word, but I get I get I, I think that they're, they're going to make Ohio State's defense squirm a little bit more than you would expect. But at the same time, I think that they do miss Micah Parsons a lot. Um, the fact that Indiana managed to put up as many points as they did without really getting the offense ever going, I know that that probably is more of a, a product of what happens when your team turns the ball over too much. But it just just makes me wonder how when they're playing against an offense that's got a lot more experience and chemistry and just runs like a well-oiled machine. Um, I, I have to imagine Ohio State's point total is going to be pretty pretty big. So I don't know if they're going to break 50, but I do, I, I'm do. i going to say 45-28. I think that Penn State probably racks up some garbage time points towards the end, but you're going to see some pretty consistent scoring for Ohio State throughout and uh, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to see Fields complete 95% of his passes again, but I would certainly, I mean, the, the chemistry with Wilson and Olave is certainly already there. You've seen it. The, the question is, how are they going to utilize their other weapons? We only saw Jamison Williams catch one uh, pass on the day. The tight ends combine it. I guess I, I actually only thought that Farrell had recorded a reception, but I guess I forgot Rucker got one too. So they did have two. The tight end room, the esteemed Buckeye tight end room that caught 25 passes between four players last year, uh, only recorded two receptions against Nebraska. And I would hope that uh, in the same way that we've seen Pat Fryermuth, uh just rack up the, uh, you know, if you've got him in your college PPR league, you're feeling pretty good. But I would hope that he doesn't single-handedly double or triple the production that we see from Ohio State's own tight end room. So I, 
I, I think that the points are going to be there. I'm just going to be curious to see how they come about if the running game comes on a little bit stronger against what's probably a more physical and uh, well-conditioned uh, run defense uh, from Penn State. But it should be interesting. But I, I think that my prediction's sort of you know in the same wheelhouse as yours. Maybe I'm just leeching off of your uh, picks because they they been so accurate through one week already <laughs> no I, I like it i like it we also got a hope too i don't i don't think there's any reason to worry and by the time this podcast comes out we might have a better idea of it but chris olave did come out of that game i don't know what the injury was it seems like kind of a concussion protocol kind of thing so hopefully he's okay to go they ryan day in the post game sounded like he was okay but we don't know for sure i imagine he'll be fine they would have um, it would be a bigger deal if he was hurt but i i, I imagine he'll play if he isn't it'll be interesting because garrett wilson will probably catch 25 passes in that game but otherwise, I mean, I'm going to go on the record and say that Justin Fields will throw more than one incompletion this week. I think I think it's going to happen. I don't know that's, if he could do 20-21 again. That's bold. Uh, very bold. Very bold. <laughs> I, I Yeah, I, I think it's going to be more interesting to see if he ends up throwing a pick or not. Um, because we did we did see in that, that first, I don't know if it was their first night game environment they had last year was the Michigan State game. But we did see that was the uh, the one pick that... He ended up throwing was in that Michigan State game where I think he just kind of led the receiver a little bit too much, and that that was at home, so it wasn't necessarily like he was playing in a hostile environment or anything. So it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see how he responds to uh, the Happy Valley atmosphere, even if it's not necessarily at the full strength that we're uh, accustomed to seeing it. Yeah, but, the the whiteout on a on a Halloween night in Happy Valley would have probably been a brutal atmosphere. So Ohio yeah. State got pretty lucky avoiding that one. All things yeah, he considered, he would have literally been seeing ghosts. But uh, in any event, we both feel pretty good about uh, this game going in, and uh, we will definitely have a recap up of all the action for you folks on Sunday. Uh, But yeah, seems like we both feel like Ohio State's in the ballpark of uh, 40 once again. We'll see how uh, Penn State responds with their own offense, which certainly has more questions than answers after uh, they're showing against Indiana. But we both feel pretty good about uh, what's to come. Thank you guys for tuning in this week. Uh, We will be back in your ear on Sunday with a recap of the action and uh, hopefully more good news to share about the Ohio State Buckeyes. So uh, for Gene Ross, I'm George Eisner. Thank you very much for tuning into episode three of Hangout in the Holy Land 2020. Happy Halloween, folks. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again in November. Take care. See you Sunday.